One thing that uh, we have learned in our series on Ecclesiastes is that, that we can identify uh, this uh, Kohelet, this assembler of sayings according to the teacher, according to our preacher who wrote this book. And he was also once a king, so we're talking about King Solomon. Is King Solomon not really, I mean, we know that he wrote Ecclesiastes, we know that he wrote the Song of Solomon, but he's probably more famous for writing uh, most of another collection of books. And what is that? Proverbs. I see mouths moving, but I don't know, you, sometimes you think I'm trying to trick you. No, it's Proverbs, okay, it's Proverbs. I have to confess something, and I don't know, I, I'm probably alone here, okay? But I really don't like Proverbs. I read them, read them every day in my daily devotion, okay? But I read them and I'm not really inspired by them, but I do read them for two reasons. Number one is that I'm a preacher and preachers are supposed to be able to open the word up to people. And Proverbs are already open. They're as open as you can get. You can't really uh, preach on Proverbs. I don't, I, I've, I've been in church 30 years and I've never heard any of my colleagues in ministry, nobody ever preached through Proverbs. I remember one year, I remember one, I forget when it was, but it was somewhere in the 90s because we were in school at the time, but the Sabbath school quarterly was on Proverbs once and it was a mess. Reason being is because Proverbs, they're not, they're not really necessarily grouped the way they're supposed to group. It's, it's, it's like Solomon just sits down and whatever comes to his head, he just writes it down. Hey, and, and, and by the way, that was his gift. That's how wise he was. He could just sit down and write down on any subject, any time. He didn't care if they went together or not. Who's gonna tell him he was wrong? So as a preacher, I'm not really thrilled with Proverbs. They're, the moral lessons in them are already there. You don't need me to tell you really what he's saying because you know, it's one thing that Solomon didn't do was mince words, right? But the second reason, and maybe, maybe I will find a bit of an audience here. Oh, probably not, probably not, because I, I know you all have no problem in this area, but I have a little bit of a difficult time accepting criticism or rebuke. Nobody here can relate to that, can they? If a proverb is addressing something that probably I should take heed to, I have a hard time taking it from somebody like Solomon. You know why? we know who Solomon was, right? And the hardest people to take criticism from or rebuke or to be convicted of something that we should be doing are people that are perfect or people that probably are guilty of the very same thing that they're rebuking you for. That's innate in us, right? I have to admit that the first time that I hear criticism, the very first thing that comes to mind is whether or not that person is guilty of, of that particular thing. And if I can't prove it in my head, if I don't have proof that it is, then I'll, I'll pick any other sin and say, you're gonna come at me with this while you're guilty of that? Who do you think you are? It's innate in us, isn't it? It's in us. But is it true? 
Should that be a reason to not hear criticism from anybody? Something to think about. In his book, Words That Hurt and Words That Heal, Rabbi Joseph Telushkin tells of the flawed critic. He speaks on how we should accept words of criticism and he tackles the flawed critic, the one who is not perfect, but insists that you be closer to perfect when they come to you. He says, keep in mind that even if your critic possesses the very flaws of which you accuse him, so what? If what he says about you is true, the fact that he, is, that he himself has numerous flaws is irrelevant. First question we should ask is whether or not it's what? Whether or not it's true. Of course there's a good chance that the person criticizing us has numerous faults. Indeed, they may even be guilty of the very flaw that they're pointing out in you. But unless we have reason to believe that their real goal is to undermine our sense of self-worth, in other words, are they attacking you simply to attack you? Are they attacking you to tear you down? You don't have to take that, by the way, no matter who they are. But we should quash such thoughts as what gives her the right to criticize me. Look at her flaws. Instead, we should ask, is what she is saying true? Even if the critic's point is exaggerated, that's no excuse to reject everything that they've said. Instead, we should ask, is there some validity in the criticism? Can I take what has been given to me and use it to improve myself? because he reminds us that the rabbis wrote, only someone who is already perfect doesn't need to learn how to accept criticism, but such a person does not exist. If it's difficult to accept criticism, try this experiment, the rabbi says. The next few times you're being criticized, consciously try to change only one thing, your attitude towards the critic. Instead of reacting as if they were your adversary, remember this two-century-old challenge offered by the great Hasidic Rabbi Nachman of Bratslav. If you're not going to be any better tomorrow than you were today, then what need have you of tomorrow? Change my attitude towards the critic. And I have to tell you, the very first time that I ever studied through Ecclesiastes, I began to change my attitude toward the critic. If I carry away one thing from this study, and I hope that you would too, is that maybe, just maybe, we would begin to see Solomon as he really was. Flawed, yes. Arrogant, yes. But a fellow sinner, yes. And it's allowed me to look past an image of a morally superior person who lectures me and more of just a real human confessing what he is certainly guilty of and certainly I am too. So we remember where he's taken us, where we've been. He had the greatest gift that any human could possess in his opinion. He had what? He had wisdom because he asked for it. Wisdom though that he found out is ruined by his fallen nature. And his fallen nature makes that very wisdom as wise as it is, as divine as it is, as God-given as it is, there is not a wiser human ever to live, except for one, the one who gave him the wisdom. But 
his fallen nature made that wisdom a vexation. The biggest vanity he could think of. Vanity of vanity and a chasing after the wind. Remember he put it this way, that which has been is that which will be. And that which has been done is that will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. The king thought he could make a difference. He really wanted to make a difference. And he said, the only thing I could do was the very thing that was already done. There's nothing new. And he chasing after the wind. I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly, for what can the one do who comes after the king? Only what is what? Only what has already been done. He thought he could turn the monarchy around. He thought he could defy Samuel's warnings to Israel about having a king. I will be different, because I walk with God. And he ended up violating everything that he thought that he could change because of his what? Because of his nature. The best humanity can offer can do nothing about the fallen human nature. Nothing. The other thing he's he's taught us in that in these chapters where he writes these, he actually has chronicled all that he's done. He has actually told us what he was guilty of. And he's violated his covenant with God so grievously, there's nothing he can do. The only thing he can do, the only thing he can think of is to confess it, to bring it out now, to write it down, to let people know what a vexation living on this planet really is. And remember I told you where we were headed to the end. At the end of the matter, when he gets done with all of this, is to fear God and what? Keep his commandments, for that is the what? The whole duty of everyone. He said, I know what I've done. And I'm gonna still take it to God because there isn't anything else I can do about it. He knows something. He knows something. And I think that's what he is trying to get across to us. That's why he is writing this. Once I understood or realized that Ecclesiastes could be his very confession that he's looking for, his confession to unburden himself, that he can take it to God then. Once I realized that that was him, I began to change my attitude about the critic. Began to change my attitude about who he was and what he's done. It's all that's left. It's all, it's what was left of his wisdom. This is it, he's at the end of his life. He's been driven insane by what he's done. And the only wisdom he has left is to write it down for you and me to read. All of a sudden I don't see somebody so morally superior or smug or somebody who has more power, more money, more everything than I do. I see a fellow sinner who's trying to help me out. He's trying to help us out. So I know it helps me a bit when he commands me of something I should be convicted of. And there are parts in Ecclesiastes, and chapter five is one of them, where all of a sudden he reverts kind of, or seems to revert into uh, not confession mode, but proverb mode. And he seems to be coming at me, coming at me with some things. And so I've struggled with this all week. 
But what hit me was, maybe there is something else to learn if I could begin to change my attitude about the critic. What is really going on when all of a sudden he switches from confessor into this mode of, y'all, here's what you need to do. The first six verses of chapter five all have something to do with uh, something that I haven't really quite thought about before. We haven't talked about it much in church, not in, not in my, all, all my years, about, about this particular thing that he addresses. And you'll see a little bit more as, as, as I get there. But the first six verses are all about this one um, act, if you will, of worship that we don't know too much about and we don't have too much information on. And I would go as far as to say we really don't have too much of a New, a New Testament application for. And that's this in verse four, he says, when you make a what? When you make a vow, to who? To God. Do not delay fulfilling it for he has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill what you vow. The first six verses are all about making what? making vows. He's gonna give guidelines on making vows to God. And I thought of this before, I, all of a sudden it hit me, I said, you know what, I don't know what these are. We have examples, but they are part and parcel of temple worship. They are part and parcel of, of the entire system, the whole sacrificial system. There are offerings that are called votive offerings. Those votive offerings are a repayment of a vow. That was made to God, not to somebody else. It's used 30 times. The word, this word for vows used 30 times. And it's all, every one of them has to do with making a vow to God. Modern uh, Hebrew dictionary puts it this way. It was a solemn promise made to God either to do or abstain from some action. Nadir, the word nadir means to separate from profane use, to consecrate to God as made to God. A vow is an act of worship. It's a conditional promise to give something to God if God grants some favor first. Vows were most often made in situations of need and they have, and here's what gets me about them, they have a bargaining quality about them. Can you think of any uh, people that made a vow to God in the Old Testament? Yeah. Hannah? She was childless. She's in a situation of what? Need. What was her vow if God would simply give her a son? That she would give it to him, right? Jacob made a vow. When he had the dream, Jacob's ladder, okay? He woke up, said, if you get me through this, I'll do everything you tell me to do. Jephthah made a vow, one of the judges. Didn't work out too well. Might have heeded Solomon's advice had Solomon been around that day. But it, what was real interesting is that vows. We know about sin offerings, guilt offerings, praise offerings, ways off, wave offerings, uh, um, grain, uh, drink, all of it. But there was this other thing. There was this what? Vows. So Solomon all of a sudden goes from confessor to starting to talk to us about vows. And they're so commonplace that there's even a psalm that says, make vows and pay them. Do it. 
God's people obviously thought that it was a good thing to do this. All who are around him shall bring tribute to the awesome one. So I don't know what your experience with this, I don't know how far you've dug with this, but this is about as far as I've ever gotten with this. And it just intrigued me, it wouldn't go away because this is how he starts chapter, uh, chapter five. First six verses talking about vows. What's your impression so far? My impression is that it bugs me. It bugs me because it gives the impression that God can be bought. It gives me the impression that he can be manipulated. And if that's true, then maybe we really do need some guidelines. You with me? And maybe that's why Solomon put it here. So let's see what he says about it and see what we're being taught, see what we're being told. Guard your steps, he says. Be careful when you go to the house of God. Draw near to listen is better than the sacrifice offered by fools, for they do not know how to keep from doing evil. What are the reasons to come to God's house? What was the whole reason for you in those days to come to God's house? It was to bring a what? It was to bring a sacrifice. That's what you were commanded to do, to bring a sacrifice or some sort of offering. And apparently vows could be part of that offering. You either came to make a vow or you came to repay a vow. After you've been told. As long as it's ordered according to God's law, okay, it, it, that can't be the sacrifice of fools. What would the sacrifice of fools be? I mean, what I'm, what I'm saying is, is that if you bring your sacrifice, you have a guilt offering, if you bring it according to what has been told and you do everything that you were supposed to do, is that a sacrifice of a fool? No. As long as it's prescribed, that's no sacrifice of a fool. As long as it's according to the law, a sacrifice of a fool can't be those. What would be the sacrifice of the fool? Well, listen to what he says. When you draw near... What? Listen. When you draw near, listen. Because listening is better than what? The sacrifice of fools. And what he's implying is this. Never be rash with what? Your mouth. Nor let your heart be quick to utter a what? A word before God. For God is in heaven and you are upon earth. Therefore, let your words be what? Be few. The kind of sacrifice that could be foolish is the only sacrifice that's offered with your what? With your mouth. The vow is the only sacrifice that you offer with your mouth. So right off the bat, Solomon says, you know what? Be careful when you come into the house of the Lord. Before you utter your vow, do something. What? Because listening is better than running your mouth. Think before you utter a sacrifice of fools. He even pours it on. He says, for dreams come with many cares and a fool's voice with many what? Think about it. Somebody has a dream from God, a prophet has a dream, and immediately what has to surround it? Words, we've got to talk about it. We have to figure out what it means. All of a sudden, we start talking about it. We start talking about what this image means. Joseph needed to explain it with what? 
with words. So the dreamers, the prophets, they have dreams, but, but, but Solomon says, this is, this is once, you, once people begin to talk about it, it could be a sacrifice of fools. Because if we're talking about God, we're not what? Listening to him. This means that, no, it means that. A fool just talks and talks and talks about meanings of something. When all the while, God is right there willing to be listened to. When you make a vow to God, do not delay fulfilling, for he has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill what you vow. It's better that you should not vow than you should vow and not fulfill it. That makes sense, doesn't it? Again, this is why you don't preach in Proverbs. Because if I was preaching just on, in Proverbs on that right there, we're done. We're done with the sermon. What else can I add to that? Right? It's better not to vow if you're not going to fulfill it. Right? Done. Let's have closing prayer. Don't delay in fulfilling your vow. Remember that he's in heaven, but what? This is what I love about this. He's in heaven and we're on earth, but if you're uttering a vow, does he hear it? Now we're getting somewhere. You may picture him far away and in heaven, and the fool says he's in heaven, he doesn't hear me anyway. But the beautiful thing Solomon is teaching us is that God's actually close enough to what? To hear. So treat God, he said, as if he's present. You know why? Because he is. He is. This is how I know to tell you, my children, the Kohelet says. He's here. So it's a good lesson. We have guidelines for it. Is there any more to learn? Don't let your mouth lead you into what? Don't let it lead you into sin. Do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your works and destroy the works of your hands? Wow. Don't try to tell him then it was a mistake, as if he didn't hear it. And then the thing, too, is that he says his messenger hears it, which messenger is, is word for you. <laughs> what are heavenly messengers? Angels. Whenever you see messenger, God's messenger, you're talking about angels. He says his angel's standing right there. If you don't want to believe that he's present and standing right there, you can at least believe that his angel's standing right there. And it's the angel's job to give him messages. It's just another way of him saying, he is present. He's there. Oops, it was a mistake. I didn't mean to. Yeah, sorry. You let your mouth run. Don't do that, he said. God be angry, destroy everything that, that of the work of your hands. Again, it's a tough lesson. It's a tough rebuke, or it seems to be a tough rebuke. But, the, but what he's getting at, to me, what I see, what I hear, because of what the Kohelet has taught us in the first three chapters, because of what our Kohelets taught, the, our, our, our Pauls and our Johns and all of the assemblers of sayings that taught us about Jesus, it's that he is present. He's there, drawn near to what? To listen. To make a vow means he has to be present to hear it. 
His presence. He's making a statement about that very thing. He wants us to remember in this act of worship that he is present. My gut reaction are vows in our attempt to buy God, to manipulate him, and the impression is that he can be, but what if there's something else? What if he's saying that I allow you to make vows because if nothing else, they bring you close to me? (laughs) And by the way, is there any better way to bring you close to him than to make you think that you can manipulate him? God says, you know what, I can't be bought, but now that you're here, let's walk, let's talk. It's what he's always wanted. See, every other sacrifice in the temple, every other act of worship in the temple requires another person. Your guilt offering, your sin offering, your wave offerings, your uh, uh, drink offerings, your grain offerings, you hand them to who? You hand them to the priest. The priest has to do what he's been called to do. In other words, the priest has the the relationship with God that God wanted with who? With everybody. We did this at Sinai. We backed off from that presence. We said, we don't want to walk and talk with you. We're perfectly happy with Moses' friends and Aaron's friends and descendants to do that for us. So if nothing else, to me, he works vows into the sacrificial system because it's the one act of worship that brings us face to face with him. The priest doesn't carry out the vow. The priest doesn't tell God the vow. We speak the vow. God does for us what we ask. We pay it back. You with me? It's the one act that brings us present with him. What is it Solomon is trying to tell us here? It's the only worship experience that brings the worshiper and God face to face. No intercessor. The vows made directly to him. His messenger, if you're you're not quite ready for that, his messenger, his angel, which is as good as his presence. But ultimately what the Kohelet knows, what he knows, what Solomon knows is, I know that when you go to God and you wanna come to him in the temple and you wanna make a vow, you need to listen. He's present, listen to him. Because he kind of picks on the entire system. With many dreams come what? vanities and a multitude of words, but fear God. How does the church prove this in the past 2,000 years? In 2,000 years, as the entire Christian church come to an entire consensus over every dream and sign of the book of Revelation? All we've done is what? Talk about it, talk about it, talk about it. Disagree, disagree, disagree. Offend, offend, offend. Go to war, go to war, go to war. All because we backed off from having a face-to-face relationship with God. We felt that it was safer to have intercessors. So we've got priests, we've got prophets. If I walked with Jesus, remember the book of Revelation? 
the revelation of Jesus Christ. If I walked with him, do you think he'd have any problem for me telling me what that really meant in Revelation or not? And if he knew that I was not ready for whatever the interpretation was, I was not in the right frame of mind, I was not in the right frame of heart, he would continue with me until I grew. As I said before, you could come to God with a vow, even if you believe you could manipulate him into doing what you want. But if you keep coming into his presence, are you going to continue to have that motive or are you going to grow? Being in his presence means everything. And I think that's what the Kohelet is trying to get us to learn, to know. God called me into his presence. That's what all this was. Dreams come what? Vanities. He's not calling every prophet who ever had a dream or every prophet who ever answered the, the prophetic call of God. It's not the prophet, it's what we do with it. We make it a vain exercise. Simply what, he says? Fear God. And remember that that doesn't mean be afraid of God. Reverence. Revere God, he says. Make God your awesome one. Be in awe of God. That's what our scripture reading said. He shall be to me, you shall be to me a kingdom of what? A kingdom of priests. See, if, everybody, every, if everybody's a priest, is anybody an intercessor? No, you don't need them. If everybody is a priest, everybody has a relationship with God, then there are no intercessors. We are face to face. And by the way, a kingdom of all priests means that they can make God their king. They don't need a king either. It wasn't God's opinion that they have a human king. No intercessors, no priests, no prophets. In fact, in the book of Joel, talking about the end time, there's a time coming when no one will say, hey, you know the Lord. You know why? Because everyone will know the Lord. There's no intercessor needed. Because God's people finally recognize his presence. So, think of our Kohelet. Do you think Solomon ever made a vow that he didn't keep? For Solomon followed Astarte, the goddess of the Sidonians, Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not completely follow the Lord as his father David had done. Every vow Solomon ever made to God, he didn't what? He didn't keep it. He didn't keep it, not at all. And now he understands that and he realizes that and as he's, as he's looking at the end of his life, he, he, he doesn't see anything else he can do except to come back to the presence of God and to explain to everybody who's reading it, you can do it too. 
See, because long before he ever did this, back when, when he thought that, that uh, when he began to make these vows and he thought that he, that he had it knocked because God gave him wisdom and, and riches and power and everything else, he, he prayed at the dedication of the temple. He looked at the people gathered there and they said, if these people, he says, sin against you, for there's no one who does not sin and you are angry with them, give them to an enemy so that they're carried away captive to the land of the enemy far off or near. By the way, that will happen twice in the near future, once to the northern kingdoms, once to Judah, to Assyria, and to Babylon. They will be taken into captivity. If they come to their senses, he says, in the land that they've been taken captive and repent and plead with you in the land of their captors saying, we've sinned, done wrong, acted wickedly. If they repent with their heart and their soul in the land of their enemies who took them captive and pray to you toward their land, which you gave to their ancestors, to the city that you've chosen, this house, if they would pray in the direction of this house, then please, Lord, hear in heaven your dwelling place, their prayer and their plea, and maintain their cause. How? Forgive them. Forgive your people who've sinned against you and all the transgressions they've committed against you. Grant them compassion in the sight of their captors so that they may have compassion on them. Look what forgiven people do. They're even able to love their enemies. Solomon remembered what he asked for Israel and now he's doing it for himself. So imagine if we didn't have the book of Ecclesiastes, we wouldn't even know that. We wouldn't be told this. We wouldn't be, be uh, touched by his humanity. I think that's what touches me the most about the Kohelet, is that he's me. That he actually cares. That he cares about my opinion of, of God. He compares about my opinion of him. He wants us to know. He's writing this for all of us to hear. What used to sound to me like a morally smug and superior rebuke is actually a heartfelt confession and it has changed my attitude towards the critic. See, he'll give one more example and I'll try to rush through this, but he'll give one more example about um, what it caused to seem, because the chapter all of a sudden after this is gonna take this very sharp turn and it seems to come out of nowhere. He's gonna attack one more thing. He went after making vows, showed us what making vows really mean, so he goes after one other thing. See, the, these first couple of verses in this section, again, it comes out of nowhere. So he says, if you see in a province the what? The oppression of the poor. Where did that come from? All of a sudden, now he's back to the oppression of the poor. Remember last week, that's what he did. He, he looked and he lamented over the oppression that was being done to people and there was nobody to liberate them. There was nobody that had compassion. So all of a sudden, now he's back to that. Violation of justice and right. Don't be amazed at the matter. He says, for the high official is watched over by a higher and there are yet higher ones over them. But all things considered, this is an advantage for a land, a king for a plowed field. He said, guess what? Don't be amazed that the oppression goes where? It goes up. 
It goes to the top. If, some, if a whole province is being oppressed, guess what? It's corrupt leadership. Shepherds who are feeding themselves with the sheep rather than feeding the sheep is the way that Ezekiel put it. Remember? Oppression of the poor, a violation of justice. Because he starts with that and then he says this, for the lover of what? See the turn that he took? Holy cow. He went from vows, he went from that one section and now turns to what? Greed. The lover of money will not be satisfied with money, nor the lover of wealth with gain. This is also what? Vanity. When goods increase, those who eat them increase. And what gain has the owner but to see them with his eyes? The next rebuke that's coming from the Kohelet is greed. And the first thing he says about it is greed will never be what? It'll never be satisfied. You can't manufacture or grow goods to keep up with the demand because the more that you make, the more, the more the demand goes up and you are just chasing your tail. No gain, you just watch the gain go. But he says this, he goes, the sleep of the working man though is what? Is pleasant, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich man does not allow him to sleep. The rich man is up at night, why? Because he's wondering how he's going to keep his riches. He's wondering how he's going to get more. His workers though, even his slaves, they sleep like babies, why? Because they're satisfied with their lot. And he said, he said, whether they eat little or much, they still sleep great. They don't have the worry of the rich man. But he says, it's a grievous ill that I've seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owners to their hurt. Those riches were lost in a bad venture. Oh, I never heard of a rich man doing that, right? Blowing it on a bad venture. But what happens when you blow it on a bad venture? He says, there are parents of children, they now have what? They now have nothing. That keeps rich people up at night, is the prospect of no longer having it, right? They've got nothing. By the way, that, that grievous ill, that's only used here. The entire Bible, those are the only time those words are used. It's a particular type of grievous evil, this greed. They have so little that they're as, they're as vulnerable as the, t the day that they came out of their mother's womb. They're completely naked. They're completely vulnerable. It's also a grievous ill, just as they came, for they shall go. What gain do they have for toiling with the wind? Where did it get you? Where is it? They got nothing. And then he says, besides all their days, they eat in darkness, much vexation and sickness and resentment. They can't enjoy their meals. They don't sleep. See, and he's looking at it, and he says, this, it has me vexed. They're vexed. I'm vexed. So again, if we had not, if we had just come across this, like it was in a scripture reading, again, doesn't it sound a little bit like a morally superior rebuke? 
But now it's not what I hear. What I hear is, I know what you're going through. Because that was me. I'm telling you, that was me. And the reason that I'm vexed is because I feel for you. I know what you're going through. And by the way, according to those first verses right there that that made the transition, it's not only that he knows what he's going through, he said, you know what? I caused what you're going through. I caused the oppression that made you rich. You worked and worked and worked because some of the gain went out the window because I was taking more and more from you. He knows what they're going through. This is what I've seen to be good. It's fitting to eat and drink and find enjoyment all the toil with which one toils under the sun. The few days of life God gives us for this is our lot. Likewise to whom God gives wealth and possessions whom he enables to enjoy them and to accept their lot, find enjoyment in their toil. This is the gift of God. If you could accept your lot and and enjoy. The, The problem isn't being rich. The problem is you're not enjoying being rich. Why? Because you're consumed your greed as you're consumed with making, you, making more. The amount of wealth uh, doesn't, const- wealthy does not equal greedy. You with me? If you have it, enjoy it. It means their time, their effort, their resources don't continue to feed the beast just to make more. Accept your lot. We all need to hear about doing better. We all need to be better. Is there anybody here who reads these? Anybody here right now after uh, where he has taken us from, from chapter one all the way to here? Is there anyone here that does not relate to this? Is there anybody here that is absolutely, positively, 100% selfless and not greedy? Is there anybody here who feels that he's not talking to them? He is talking to me, but it makes a difference that he knows who he is and he knows who I am and he cares because I've been through what you've been through and I don't want you to go through it. It vexed me. It's a chasing after the wind 4,000 years ago. It should vex you. It's a chasing after the wind today. A greedy sinner, one who understands. In case we're not convinced, remember, this is what was given to Adam. This is what was given to him after the fall. God said, this is what you'll be like. This selfish nature that you now have, Adam, here is what's going to happen as you begin to work this selfish nature out. You've listened to the voice of your wife. You've eaten of the what? You've eaten of the tree which I commanded you. You shall not eat of it. So from now on, cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles that will bring forth for you. You shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, you were dust, and to dust you shall return. From cradle to grave you're going to have to what now? You're going to have to work. And here's what gets me. Here's what bothers me 
about the selfish nature and being told this is that from now on in this particular uh, fallen corner of the world, greed will be rewarded. Doesn't matter if you're greedy as long as you what? As long as you worked for it. If you worked honestly for it, it doesn't matter how greedy you are. That's as far as the selfish nature will take us, right there. And if you don't think that any of us are greedy at any time, know that we, this is what we inherited. This is us. You with me? By the way, just real quick, what system rewards this the most? Capitalism, right? That's exactly what it's based on. Now, I'm not anti-capitalism. Capitalism does not equal greedy. But selfish nature in capitalism equals what? Equals greedy. But capitalism in the hands of selfless, loving, understanding, empathizing Christians could be a whole new ballgame, couldn't it? I came across this, forgive me, education, page 44, Ellen White says this, were the principles of God's laws regarding the distribution of property carried out in the world today, how different would be the condition of the people? An observance of these principles would prevent the terrible evils that in all ages have resulted from the oppression of the poor by the rich, the hatred of the rich by the poor. While it might hinder the amassing of great wealth, it would tend to prevent the ignorance and degradation of tens of thousands whose ill-paid servitude is required for the building up of these colossal fortunes. It would aid in bringing a peaceful solution of problems and that now threaten to fill the world with anarchy and bloodshed. Just something to think about. The king knew this. The Kohelet is confessing. There's only one way. One way, he says, is to take all of this and to be fully present. The Kohelet says, do what I do. If coming to you today, you realize that you're foolish in the way that you make vows, that you're trying to manipulate God. If coming to you today, you, you realize that you are more greedy than you would like to be, then take that to God. Do what I'm doing. He's fully present. You go and be fully present. He already knows. You don't need to lie to him. You don't need to manipulate him. He knows and he calls you in to listen to him, to be present. The Father knows what you need before you ask, Jesus says. Father knows what you're gonna say before you say it. That doesn't matter to him. He sets that aside so simply you can be with him. I already know who you are. You don't have to come tell me who you are. You just need to bring your burden to me and let me take care of it. The Kohelet has learned this through an entire life of living out his selfishness, his greed, his lust, his power, his oppression. And he says, God already knows who I am. So I'm not real talkative. I'll bring it to him and he'll listen to me and I'll listen to him. He knows and yet calls you into his presence.
when you go to the house of God, draw near to listen. It's the only thing that's going to get us through living under the sun. Amen? Amen. The words of the Kohelet. <laughs>